Jewish audio on Kaban.org. Rambam Mishnah Torah, Hilchas Beis HaPchir, the laws of the house which is chosen, referring to the Holy Temple, Perek Hamishi, chapter 5. In the earlier chapter, we talked about the Beis HaMikdosh itself, the Temple itself. Now we move to the Temple Mount, what is called the Har Habayis, the Temple Mount. And I must point out, that once upon a time, the Temple Mount was much more mountain than it is today because over the years, the Temple Mount was destroyed and leveled and all kinds of stuff done to it. But once upon a time, it was clearly a mount. Har Habayis, the Temple Mount, with chapter 5, Halacha Aleph. The Hu, another name synonymous with the name Har Hamoria, Mount Moria. We talked about Mount Moriah earlier. The size was a square of 500 cubits by 500 cubits. There was a wall surrounding it. Now, the earth beneath it was hollowed out. And this is, as we will learn, for the purpose of laws of purity and impurity. In case there was an age-old corpse buried underneath there, there is a way of hollowing it out and building supportive arches. Benuyes mitachtav, hollows were built under it with arches, so that it not create a tent of impurity, and it had arches upon arches, or colonnades inside colonnades, and this was a special construction to avoid the impurity of the underground. Base two, and it had five gates. There were five entry gates. One gate was from the west. And the Mishnah in Midos relates that this gate was called Kaiphonus. And the Shilte Gibberim explains that this means garden in Greek because there was a beautiful rose garden planted by this western gate. Echad one from the east. This eastern gate was called the gate of Shushan. Shushan, the capital of Persia, contributing, uh, commemorating the Persian influence of the construction of the temple. Remember, this was in the second Beis the return from Persia, Medea, Babylon. And the image of the city of Shushan was engraved upon it. This was done at the command of King Cyrus of Persia, who gave permission to build the temple. And one from the north, which was called the Tadi Gate, meaning hiddenness. This gate was used when someone was forced to leave the temple. He was expelled due to impurity or what have you, but didn't want to publicize the circumstances so that the paparazzi not get him, the reporters. So this was the secret gate where they snuck out the back door. 
Its construction differed from that of the other gates. Rather than have an ordinary lintel, it had two stones leaning against each other. So that was the northern gate. The Echad min and then two from the south. And these were the gates most frequently used to enter into the Temple Mount. They were named after the prophetess Chulda, Share Chulda, in the temple, in the time of the first temple. She stood before these gates and urged the people to repent. Rechav, Koshar, Eser, Amas, the width of every gate was 10 cubits, the Gobe in its height, or Eslim, 20 cubits, the Yeshlohem, Glosses, and there were doors. And now he points out in the notes here that Meseches Sofrim, the tractate Sofrim, relates that there were two additional gates in the Holy, on the Temple Mount, one for mourners and one for grooms. The Jewish people would sit between these two gates, waiting to console the mourners and to join the celebration of the grooms. Okay, so that's Halacha Beis. Gimel, now that we've done the gates... Lafnim Mimenu Seidig Makif Saviv. Further within, there's a latticework partition going around Govayasaratwachim. It is ten handbreadths high. And within the lattice partition, Hachel was the Chael, a rampart. The Govayasar Amas was ten cubits high. The Olav who Eimer Bakinas with regard to these things. The prophet Jeremiah prophecies in Lamentations, Vayavel Chael Vechema. And they lamented the wall and the rampart. Zu Chemas Hazar referring to the wall of the courtyard. Dalid Lifnimin Achel Hazar within this wall of the courtyard. And the temple courtyard was 187 cubits long and 135 wide. So further within was the courtyard. 187 by 135. The courtyard in which most of the activity took place. You have the Temple Mount, within it the courtyard, within it the Beis Hamikdash. There were seven gates, three were in its north side, close to the west. Three from the south, close to west. One in the east, connected Beis directly opposite the Holy of Holies. Every gate was 10 amas high and was 10 amas wide and 20 amas high. And remember, we talked about the fact that there's tremendous wealth in the base of Mignesh. These were all, these doors were covered with gold. Gold plated. The one exception was the eastern gate. Which was covered with Brass or bronze. Dame Elazar, which looked very much like gold. For all practical purposes, it could have appeared to be like gold. The Shah is there, and this gate, who Hanikra is called Shah Elian, the upper gate. The who, and this is the famous Shah Nikonar, the gate of Nikonar. Now let's talk a little bit about Shah Nikonar in honor of the, no, in honor of the noble person. 
who donated its doors. The tractate Yuma 38A relates that Nikon, their journey to Alexandria to request of the skilled bronze workers there to fashion these gates, way back when in the beginning. When the gates were finished, he set sail with them to return to Eretz Israel from Alexandria. At sea, a violent storm almost capsized the vessel. This is a famous story. After other measures failed, the crew members decided to jettison some of the ship's cargo to reduce its weight. Immediately, they tossed one of the heavy bronze gates to the waves. But the danger did not cease, and the crew wanted to cast the second gate overboard as well. Hearing this, Nikonor protested, and he declared that he would have to be thrown into the sea before the gate. As soon as he made that statement, the storm subsided, and the ship was able to proceed. Throughout the remainder of the, of the journey, this Nikonor was overcome with remorse. Why, he thought, hadn't he defended the first gate as well? Because as soon as he defended the second gate, the storm stopped. How great was his joy when the ship docked at Acre and the gate emerged from under its hull. So that was the miracle story of the Shari Nikonor, or Shari Nikonor, when the financial situation of the Jewish people improved, and they put... They took all the bronze gates and covered them with gold. Nevertheless, they permitted Nikonor's gate to remain as a memory of the great miracles which occurred. And the sages, our sages, declared their bronze shined like gold. So these are the miracles of Shar Nikonor. Let me pause for a second and let me see if I can find some appropriate photographs here. What he said here, what we just learned is that the temple was not centered. Okay, here's a bird's eye view of the courtyard and the Beis Hamikdash. And here is a uh, Sketch, architectural sketch, and here's a bird's eye view. We'll go back, go back, 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 back. Let's get the whole thing. Okay, so what we just learned is that the temple courtyard was not situated in the middle of the Temple Mount. Rather, it was set off further from the southern wall of the Temple Mount than from all the other walls. And it was closest to the western side of the Temple Mount, more than all sides. There was much more space between it and the north than there was between it and the west. There was much more space between it and the eastern end than there was between it and the northern end. So it was not at all centered. Now, Vilifnei Ho'azoro... 
In front of the temple courtyard was a place called Haisa Ezras Hanoshim, was a place called the women's courtyard. The women's courtyard. Now, in Halacha 9, and in the notes in Halacha 9, which I will, God willing, review, we'll learn about the women's courtyard and what it is. And the women's courtyard was, Meya Amma, a hundred cubits. Velamid Hay, and thirty-five cubits. Arechev Kuflamid Hay was a hundred and thirty-five cubits by a hundred and thirty-five cubits. So it was a large area. Now, the Arba Lishokais, or Lishkois, Hoya Ba'arba Mikseser, Shalarboyim Amma. Now, each corner had a, a office, a chamber. Each 40 cubits by 40, by 40 cubits, the corners. They were not covered. And the Rambam tells us here, he throws in here, that that's exactly how it will be in the Beis Amigdash, which will be built when Mashiach comes. So you have a big area called the women's courtyard, and in the women's courtyard there are four offices, one in each corner. What do these offices do? What do these chambers do? What's the, what are they used for? The southeastern chamber was called the chamber of the Nazarites. They had to cook the peace offerings of the Nazarites. They had to shave off their hair. And we learned this extensively in the section of Nazir. And we learned about this shaving, and we learned about this cooking, and we learned that it was not done in the Mesamigdash itself. Where was it done? In the women's courtyard, in the office in the room for Nazarites. One of the four rooms was dedicated to that. Mizrach is the northeastern corner. Lishka's Dira Eitzim was known as the chamber of the woodshed. What's the chamber of the woodshed? Shesham Kayanim Balimumim is Misalim Bo You could not bring wood that had worms upon the altar. It was unfit for the altar if it had worms. Only tequila could have worms. Wood for the altar cannot have worms. So they had the Kohanim who were unfit for service because they had blemishes, but what they could do is deworm the wood. And that was the deworming chamber. Shekol any wood that had a worm puzzle is unfit. So that's the second chamber. So one is for the Mitzayroyim, for the lepers. I'm sorry, no, I, I take it back. One was for the Nazirim. For the people who accepted a Nazarite vow, the other was for the deworming of the wood. Svenis Marobis, the northwest. Lishkas Hamatzerayim was for the lepers. Those afflicted with tsaras. And as he says here in the note, it contained a mikveh in which those seeking purification from Tzaras immersed themselves as part of the process of regaining ritual purity. So the chamber for the lepers also had a mikvah, among other things. And finally, Marab is the 
southeast one, that's where they stored wine and oil. There was a tremendous amount of wine consumed in the Beis Amigdash and a tremendous amount of oil. And that was the storage spot of the wine and the oil. And that was called the chamber of the oils. So now we know the uses of all four chambers. Okay, but how did this women's section work? So here, you may want to make reference to a diagram. Do we have this diagram in the book? Okay, nine. Ezra's Hanoshim The women's chamber. This diagram, is it in the book? No? Okay, so you have, let me, let me show here, the top. You have in the Meznayim Rambam, this top diagram. Why, we want the top. The women's courtyard was surrounded by balconies. What were the balconies used for? For the women. In order that the women should be able to see from above and the men from below so that men and women not mixed together in the Beis Hamikdash area. Now, let's look at the notes here. Women were not allowed to enter the temple courtyard except to perform certain rituals in connection with sacrifices which they had brought. However, they were permitted to enter this outer courtyard and therefore it was named accordingly. The Mishnah relates that three ba- these three balconies were a later addition to the temple structure because the famous use of these women courtyards were that on the festival of Sukkot, the entire Jewish people would gather in this courtyard to watch the Simchas Beis HaSheva celebrations, the festivals associated, the festivities associated with the joy of the water libation, though the men and the women were seated in separate sections, the closeness between them might bring about a certain dimension of frivolity which was not appropriate, and therefore, these balconies were constructed. So what is the definition, to my understanding, of women's courtyard? That's the courtyard where women were also permitted to go. But it was not unique only for women. That was where the action took place. There was tons of stuff going on there. That was the people's courtyard. Also, the women. There was a large structure outside next to the courtyard outside at the north between the courtyard and the chayel it was built with a dome and its inner walls were surrounded with stone protrusions and this was called base this was the chamber of the hearth. Beis Hamogate, chamber of the hearth, because the priests kindled a fire within it to keep warm. 
or Shnei Psachim and had two doors, two doorways, Echad Pasach Lazara, one open to the courtyard, Echad Pasach Lachela, one open to the Cheel. The Arba Lishachis Hoyubay, and it had two offices, it had rather four offices, it had the Arba is four, Lishachis Hoyubay. Shtayim Kadesh, Shnaim Cheel. Two of them were designated for the holy, two of them were designated for the regular mundane activity, and everything in the Beis Hamikdash was either holy or mundane. There were different sections. So the two that were holy were considered extensions of the temple courtyard. And this is significant with regard to prohibitions against eating sacrifices of the highest degree outside the temple courtyard. So there is the holy and then there's the mundane. And they had marking posts separating the areas of holy and the areas of mundane. What were these areas used for? Marov is Dremis, very interesting, very important. The southwestern chamber was known as Lishkasatloyim, the chamber of the lambs. They had to bring the daily offering. The daily offering was brought with lambs. Where did they keep the lambs ready to go? This was the area where they inspected the lambs and they kept them ready to go. And there was always a minimum of six lambs ready to go in this chamber. So that's the Lishkas HaTloyim, the chamber of the lambs. Odreimis Mizrachis, the southeastern one, was Lishkas Eisei Lechem Aponim. That's the chamber of where they bake the showbreads. The showbreads was a very important function in the Beis Hamikdash, And there was a whole chamber where they prepared and baked the showbreads. So here you have the chamber of the lambs. Yeah? They're showing lambs there? And here you have the chamber of the showbreads. You see the team preparing the showbreads. Now, let me just take a moment to go back. And you're going to have four chambers here. From right to left, the chamber of the Nazir, the chamber of the wood, the chamber of the oil, and the chamber of the Mitzrayim, of the lepers, where there were, where there was a mikvah. So let's go one at a time now. That's the one with the dome. Because these are the ones we learned about earlier. Those are the four chambers on the four corners. So there was the lechem upon him, the showbread. Mizrochis Tzveinis, the northeastern chamber. Bogonzu beis chashmonoi avne mizbeach sheshiksum malchiyovon. The Greek kings went and worshipped idols on the altar. So the altar had to be uprooted and dismantled. And this is where the Hasmonean kings concealed and entombed the stones of the altar upon which they worshipped idols. Tzvenis Marovis and the northwest chamber, was where you could go down to the mikvah. That was the mikvah room. And this is the mikveh area underneath. Now, what happens? How does it work? 11, I yated when somebody descends to the mikveh from this office. Hayahelech b'mesiba ha'heleches tachas ha'migdash kulay. 
He would go down a winding stairway located under the entire holy temple complex. You'd have candles or flames burning from each side until you come to the area of immersion. And there was a big area, there, there was a big light there illuminating it. There was also a restroom there of dignity, a chamber of dignity, they watch its dignity, they knew that Matsoi know if it was locked, there was nobody there was somebody there. If it was unlocked, it was vacant. Now he goes on, so that's the mikvah. Back to the text twelve what is the length of the courtyard east to west, Maya Oshmain Bashaba hundred and eighty seven cubits. Mizel this is the calculation if I can see that a second. So now we're going to the length of the courtyard. Okay, we're now focusing on this. The length of the courtyard. You see here the Beis Amigdash itself set in the courtyard and he's going to give the usage of every one of these 187 cubits. From the most western wall of the courtyard to the wall of the temple building. And we already learned the Hechel itself is a hundred Amas. The Beis HaMikdosh. Between the Ulam and the Mizbeach. Remember we learned earlier about the Mizbeach. Washtayim Ve'esrim was 22 cubits. We learned earlier how big is the Mizbeach itself. Was 32 squared. HaMizbeach Shtayim Mishleishim. The altar is 32. And the place where the Kohenim would walk, the chamber of Kohenim, or the area of Kohenim, was 11 Amas, where Israelites could walk, and this is called Ezus Yisrael, where the people who brought the sacrifices waited, another 11 Amas. So that is how we consume the whole length. And if we look again, if you can zoom in on this side as much as possible, see this is the now we're looking to this side of the Beis Hamikdash, where you have all of the stuff we just talked about. You have the altar, and you have the work area surrounding the altar. Now moving right along, the width of the courtyard, moving from north to south, was 135 cubits, and this is the calculation. And if you can zoom in here, this is the width. We're going to go through defining the use of every cubit in the width. From the north, until the butchering area, Shmeina Amas was eight Amas. Beis Amit Bachayim, the butchering area, Shmeina Esri Amas, Omechza, twelve and a half Amas, and What do you need a butchering area for? That's where they would work with and suspend the sacrificed animals and on posts and remove their hides. 
Then they had work area, the place of the tables, and you should have a diagram, I think, of the tables. Shmeina Amis, eight Amis. There were marble tables. And we learned earlier they were marble because they retained coolness. They washed the meat to cook it. There were a total of eight tables. And near the tables were the rings. 24 amos. That's where they actually slaughtered. The sacrifices. Between the rings and the altar were Shmei Amas, were eight Amas, Ramizbech. The altar itself, as we learned earlier, Shtayim was Shleishim 32. We learned that there was a ramp, Shleishim, which was 30. And between the ramp and the southern wall, Shtayim was 12 and a half. So from the northern wall, until the wall of the Mizbeach, 60 and a half, or connect the Mekesalam, and from the entrance hall to the eastern wall was 76 cubits. All this square, is called the north. That's where the holy of holies are slaughtered. So whenever we say, slaughtered in the north, this is the Tzofen. Now we know what the north is. Now we have to understand there was a tremendous amount of business activity going on in the Holy Temple in order to be able to do what you had to do. And all these required offices and staffing. The courtyard of the Israelites had eight offices or chambers. So moving right along, by the way, I want to show the area of the altar and north of the altar where the sacrifices took place. Here's the north of the altar and here is the altar and the north. And finally, we're about to learn about these four, let's see all four, these four chambers. That is the final halacha in this chapter. We're going to go through the detail of what these chambers did. So he says, In the section called Ezes Israel, there were eight offices, Sholesh Batsopin, three in the north for Sholesh Badorim, and three in the south. Shebadorim, what was in the south, was Lishkas Hamelech, the office of the salt. There was a lot of salt used in the Holy Temple. And this was the chamber of the salt. Lishkas Haparva. There was the Lishkas Haparva, the chamber of Parva. And this chamber was named after a Gentile magician who dug a tunnel under the temple courtyard to observe the services. He was discovered... And this was known as Lishkas HaParva, not a good thing. Lishkas HaMedichin, the chamber of the washing. And here he defines, Lishkas HaMelech, what was the salt chamber? That's where they would salt every sacrifice. No sacrifice went without salt. 
Lishkas HaParvo. What was Lishkas HaParvo? Shamelchen Eres HaKadoshim. That's where they salted the holy. The Algago and on its roof, Hoysa Beis Tvila, the Kohen Godel, B'yamekipurim, on the roof of Lishkas HaParvo. Was a mikveh which the Kohen Godel used on Yom Kippur. Lishkas HaMadich in the chamber of washing, chamber of washing, Shom HaMadich in Kirve HaKadoshim, they washed the holy pieces. Omisham Misibo Eila Lagag Beis HaParvo. And there was a winding ramp going to the roof of the Beis HaParvo to the mikveh. Ba'asholah Shibitzopin and the Three in the north, Lishkas Hagozis, was the Yun chamber. Lishkas Hagula, the chamber of the bowl. Lishkas Oates, the chamber of the wood. The famous Lishkas Hagozis was what? Shebos Sanhedri Gedele Yeshevis. That's where the great Supreme Court of 71 were, in the Lishkas Hagozis, in the Yun chamber. That's in one of these areas. The Chetz Yehoyakadosh, half was in the holy. The Chetz Yehoyachelon, half was in the mundane. The Loshnei Psachim, it had two, two approaches. Echad Lekadosh, Echad Lechel, one in the holy, one in the mundane. Of Echad Yishochel, Hayasan Hedrin, Yeshvin, in the mundane one is where the Sanhedrin sat. Lishkas Hagula, Shomai Sebar, Shomai Begula. The chamber of the bowl had a well from which water was drawn with a bowl. That's why it's called the chamber of the bowl. That's where the water source of the whole courtyard was. And then the office of wood, was behind them both. Why is it called the chamber of wood? This is not the wood chamber where they inspected for worms. We had that earlier. This was the chamber of the high priest. The office of the high priest, Vihi Anikras Lishkas Parhedrin, it's also called Lishkas Parhedrin. Vegag Shloshton Shom, and the roof was all equal. Ushtel Shachas Acheres Hayisham Bezes Yisrael, there were three other ones. Achas Mimin, one to the right, Shar Mizrach of the eastern gate. Vilishkas Pinchas Hamalbish, that was the gate of Pinchas, the clothes butler. He was the one that was in charge of the clothes, and he was of that first generation, so they named him, they named the room for him. That's where they made the daily gift which the Kohen Godel brought. So now, let me show you what we have here. Let's show this one here is the Sanhedrin in the Lishkas Hagozis. Then we have here the winding staircase. And we have here Lishkas Pinchas Hamalbish, the guy who was in charge of wardrobe. End of chapter 5. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, Beis Habchiro, the laws of the chosen house, referring to the Beis Hamigdash, the holy temple. Perek Shishi, chapter 6, Halacha Aleph 1. The Rambam says, Hamigdash Kulei, the entire holy temple complex, Lehoya B'Mishmar, was not built on flatlands. That's a street in Brooklyn. Called flatlands. Ella bimaile hohor. Rather, it is built on the incline of a mountain. You know what? That's why they call it the Temple Mount. What a coincidence. Kisha odam nichnas mishar mizrochi shalharabai is therefore when somebody enters from the eastern gate. From the eastern side, the eastern gate of the Temple Mount, Mahalach at Seif Hachel He would proceed 
till the end of the area, called the chil or the chel, on one level. A distance of approximately 213 cubits, separated between the exterior wall surrounding the Temple Mount and the eastern wall of the Temple Courtyard. The women's courtyard was 135 cubits long. A thick wall surrounded it, leaving approximately 68 cubits between the wall and the exterior wall. According to the Rambam's diagrams, the ratio of space between the chayel and the exterior wall and the space between the chayel and the women's courtyard was approximately 3 to 1. Thus, the the distance mentioned here was approximately 51 cubits. So therefore, he says, One would need to ascend from the area called the Chayel to the area called the women's courtyard, using 12 steps. That's the 12-step program. Just, Just kidding. Reim or Kelmaila, the height of every step. This is pretty uniform. How high is a step? Chatsi Amma, a half Amma. So if you figure an Amma is approximately 18 inches, a half Amma is approximately 9 inches. That was the height of the step. Vishilcha, and the depth of the step, Chatsi Amma was also a half Amma deep. So from the Cheo area to the women's courtyard, one had to ascend the 12 steps. And as we learned, the steps were in a semicircle. A large semicircle. One then would walk the entire area known as the women's courtyard on level ground. From there, one would ascend to the place called the courtyard of the Israelites, which we all learned, we learned all about these locations earlier. So that's the beginning of what we call the temple courtyard, using 15 steps. The height of the steps, a half amma. And its depth was a half a amma. He brings down here about these 15 steps, that the steps were semicircular in shape, and during the Simchas, Beit HaShoeva, Sukkah celebration, the Levites stood on these steps and they sang and played music. He would then journey through the area called the Israelite courtyard on level ground and ascend from it to the courtyard known as the priestly courtyard, the Kohanim's courtyard, one step up high, one amma high. So this was a different height. All the other steps were half a amma. This is a whole amma. Which served, he says here, as a clear demarcation between the Kohanim area and the Israelite area. The Aleha Duchon, and upon that area there was a platform. 
Yesh Baisholash Mailas, that platform had three steps. Rum Kol the height of every step was a half amma, the shilchachatziyamba, and the depth of the step, meaning how, how deep the step was, or how wide the step was, was a half amma, nimtseis ezras hakeinim gabeya, I'll show call you, I'll show you srosh, the amma So the Kohanim's area was higher than the Israelite area, two and a half ammas. Then he walks, so to speak, the entire Kohanim courtyard and the Mizbeach, and between the Ulam. And the Mizbeach was level. And then he goes up to the Ulam using 12 steps. Room Kalmaila Khatsiyama, each one a half ama high, Vishilcha Khatsiyama, and the depth was a half ama, via Ulam Bahecho Kula Bishoba. Now the Ulam, which is the entry area of the Besam Migdash, Ulam means like the lobby, and the remainder of the Besam Migdash called the Hecho, they were all on the same level. And here you see a diagram of the step and you have the top diagram on the handout here and these are based upon the diagrams attributed to the Rambam itself A is the height of a step which is a half a cubit and B is the depth or the width of the step meaning a half a cubit Hey Nimtza gave a karka Al Karkashar So therefore the total height which we've ascended step by step, how big is the vestibule, the, the holy temple building? How much higher is it than the level ground at the eastern gate as we enter the temple mount Mount was twenty two almost higher. Now he says, Houston, we got a problem. Because the gate of the Temple Mount was 20 amos, and the whole height of the Hecho was only 22 amos higher, or was 22 amos higher. Therefore, when somebody stands, on the other side of the eastern gate, which is 20 amos high, because he has 20 amos. And then the area goes up 22 amos only. He can't see the entrance of the Beis Hamikdash because when you're standing not far from a 20 amma wall, you can't see a 22 amma height. You have to be much, much, much Further back, and even then you can't see it. Because it's not high enough. So what's the solution? The solution is, the easiest solution is to make the wall lower. And therefore, Mipnezeh, because of this very reason, also they made Kesel Shar, Shalgabe Shar Zeh, the wall at this entry, which entry? The eastern entry. They made it lower. Why is it so important to have a visual between one point and the other, because it's important that the Kohen, who's standing on Mount Olives, 
Reya should have a visual sight of Pesach HaEchel, of the entry of the Beis HaMikdash, when he sprinkles from the blood of the red heifer towards the Beis HaMikdash, he has to have visual sight of the Beis HaMikdash. Therefore, what they did is that side, the eastern area wall, they made it much lower than 20 Amos. So now we've solved the problem. The Kohen, who is doing the red heifer ritual, standing on Mount Olives, can now see the Beis HaMikdash, because that wall area, in his view, was lowered. Vov, now he goes on to tell us information. Velishkeis, or Lishokes hayusham, tachas ezras Yisrael, psuchas lezras noshim. There were chambers or offices under the courtyard of the Israelites, opening up to the women's courtyard. So these were underground chambers, Shasham Halabiyam Nasdim, where the Levites would store Hakinades Vanivolim Vamitsoltayim Bachol Kleshir, where they stored their harps, their lyres, their cymbals, all their musical instruments. That was the storage of the musical instruments. One of the primary functions of the Levites, Leviim Bishiram, the Levites with song. There was instrumental and vocal. This is where they stored their many instruments. Bial Hadukhan and on the platform. Ha'ela, which rose up, may Ezra Yisrael from the section of Israelites, Lazarus Akainim to the section of Kohanim, Hayuhalviim, Amy Bishosh, Amy Shira, Akarban. That's where the Levites stood when they said Shira, when they sang as the Israelites would bring sacrifices, the Levites would sing. It was that area that they stood, that platform ascending from the Israelite section to the Kohanim section. Now he goes on to say, and we need to know that every area in and around the Beis Hamikdash is either Kodesh or Chol. It's either sanctified with the sanctity of the Beis Hamikdash, or it's not. Because we need to know, for example, can the Kohen eat there, part of the sacrifices? If it's Kodesh, he can. If it's Chol, it means it's past the boundary. So now he says, Halishkais or Halishachais, Habnuyas Bakedesh, Shepsuchas Lechel. There were chambers that were built on holy ground, but which opened to an area that was not holy ground. The rule is, if their roofs were equal, were at the same level as the ground of the courtyard, then what's in them is mundane, but their roof being that it's level. With the holy, was was holy. So on it is holy, in it is not holy. In it is every day, is mundane. But if they're not level, then even their roof area is mundane. Because the roofs and the second stories were not sanctified. Therefore, we need to know that that these rooftops, the Kohanim may not eat holy of holy foods that can only be eaten in the base of Migdash. Remember, we learned there was holy food which can be eaten anywhere in Jerusalem, and there was holy of holy food, which had to be eaten only in the Beis Hamikdash area. And we can't slaughter the regular level of holiness there, because it doesn't have the level of the holy. But if they were built on mundane ground, but they were opening up to holy ground, 
Within them, one could eat the holy of holy foods. But one cannot slaughter the regular holy. Somebody who entered into there in a state of impurity, Potter was exempt. And their roofs were mundane for all purposes. Now he says in nine Amachiles Hapsuches the underground passageways. There were many underground passageways, which were open to the temple courtyard. They are holy. But those which were open to the other side, to the temple mount, are mundane. They're every day. Hachalein is the windows of Elbiachem and the thickness of the wall. Kilifnim is like the inside. Bein lachilus kochim, whether for the purpose of eating the holy of holies, bein latuma, or for the purpose of the impure. Yud. Now we come. We segue to an interesting set of laws. What if the court, the Sanhedrin, wants to expand the boundaries of Jerusalem? Or, second scenario, what if the Sanhedrin wants to make the temple courtyard larger? They decided they need more space. What is the ritual they must perform in order to go about this? So first of all, number one is they may. There's an interesting teaching. It says that when Mashiach will come, and the Jewish people will have to all return to Israel, and everyone is going to bring sacrifices in Jerusalem, how is it going to be possible? How is there going to be enough space? There's an interesting teaching, which is very important. It says that, Jerusalem will spread forth to the entire Israel. The entire Israel will become Jerusalem. And Israel will spread forth to all the lands all over the world. So you can actually argue when Mashiach comes, will we go to Israel or will Israel come to us? That's not for me to resolve right now, but it's an interesting thing to think about. So what if the courts want to expand Jerusalem? What if the courts want to expand the courtyard of the temple where all the activity took place may see from they have license to do so in fact technically they can expand the courtyard as much as they want to to consume as much of the temple mount as they thought it should theoretically technically they can expand the walls of Jerusalem as far as they want to it's possible says when Mashiach will come, Jerusalem will encompass all of Eretz Yisrael up to Damascus. That will be Jerusalem. Okay, now comes the conditions. Yud Aleph, Ein Meisif in Alair, we can't add to the city of Jerusalem. Al Ho'azores, we can't add to the courtyard. El Alpi Amelach, condition number one is there has to be a king present. It has to be the era of kings, and there has to be a king. And I don't think we're talking about Rodney King. The Alpinovi, second condition is there has to be a prophet. I'm just going to have a sip of tea here. In addition to a king, there has to be a prophet. 
And then there has to be the high priestly breastplate, which is functioning for questions and answers. Then, even though you have a king and a prophet and a breastplate, head it must be passed by the Supreme Court of 71 judges. As it says, According to everything I will show you, so you should do, for all generations. So now comes the big question. In that case, how did Moshe do any of the stuff involving the tabernacle? The answer is in halacha. Moshe Rabbeinu had the level, was considered a king. It's actually a famous verse. There was a king in Yeshurun. It's a verse in Deuteronomy. Say our sages, that refers to Moshe Rabbeinu, who had the level, that was considered like a king. So that's why he could establish boundaries of the tabernacle. Okay, so we know who. Now the question is how. What is the ritual that we need to do to add square footage to Jerusalem? We learn this from the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first thing is, is that the Sanhedrin must offer up two thanksgiving offerings. We're not talking about the turkey thanksgiving. Two toda, two givings of thanks. And a thanksgiving offering always included three elements. The leaven, the leavened breads, which means the chametz breads. An animal, which is sacrificed, and loaves of unleavened breads. So the bezdin, the Sanhedrin, must bring two of those sets of sacrifices. And then they take the leavened breads of that sacrifice. And then they march with it, and the Sanhedrin would follow these two offerings. These two offerings would be paraded, one following the other, not together side by side, but one after the other. All of these we learn from the scenario with Ezra and Nehemiah. They would stand on every corner and every stone in Jerusalem playing musical instruments in Jerusalem. It was a big musical bash, a musical parade. And they would say the particular verse from a very special Psalm 30. What's Psalm 30? Psalm 30 is Mizmar Shir Chanukas Habayis Ledovid, the psalm of the dedication of the Holy Temple. They said, Mimcha Hashem, I will exalt you, Hashem, Ki Dilisoni, because you have uplifted me, you have not allowed my enemies to be victorious over me. Here, it's not God forbid Jerusalem is becoming smaller, Jerusalem is becoming bigger. This parade was done until they came to the edge of where they're sanctifying this, the boundary. And then they would stand there, and there they would consume one of the Thanksgiving breads, from one of the Thanksgiving offerings, and the second bread, 
Nisrephus would be burned. Which bread would be eaten and which bread would be burned? I'm glad you asked. The Alpi Hanovi, the prophet, would tell, would give instructions. The prophet would say, this one you eat and this one you burn. And this procedure was carried out at Nehemiah's dedication of Jerusalem. The prophets Haggai, Scharia, and Malachi participated in that dedication. And they advised Nehemiah as to what they should do. That is making Jerusalem larger. The chain, and similarly speaking, if they wanted to enlarge the temple courtyard, which he brings down here, really never happened. The temple courtyard remained the same size as it was when it was dedicated by Ezra. But, theoretically, one can enlarge it. They do the same ritual. They sanctify it with the leftover of the particular mincha. What is the mincha? The mincha is the meal offering, the special meal offering. He brings down here. Well, one second. Afa Azora, even in the courtyard, Shiori Hamanochis, what's left over of the meal offerings, Sheinachon Elabo, which can only be eaten in it in the courtyard, Hain Shemakachon Esabohem, that's what we use to sanctify the enlarged courtyard. They eat it at the edge of the place. He brings down here in the notes that when a man offers a meal offering to Hashem, to God, his offering shall be a fine flour. The priest, first of all, has to burn a memorial part of it on the altar. And the remnant of the meal offering should be Aaron and his sons. It is of the sacrifices of the highest order of holiness. However, it must be eaten in the temple courtyard. So this is what we use to stretch the temple courtyard. Then we come to the edge and we eat it. Yudalid 14. Wherever this order and this procedure was not followed. Ain't Kiddush Gomor. Then the place was really not sanctified. If we're talking about enlarging Jerusalem or the courtyard. Now he says that we have to understand, and here comes a very complex section of Rambam from here to the end of this chapter. Why did Ezra bring about two thanks offerings? This was merely a memorial service, a remembrance. It's not with Ezra's acts. It's not his deeds that sanctified the place. Why? Because we just said you need a king. There was no king. There was no king. The priestly breastplate, the high priestly breastplate did not have the ability for questions and answers as we learned earlier. It was merely a garment. It was not a functioning garment. In the second base on Migdash we learned earlier. So in that case, how did Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Scharlia and Malachi, how did they sanctify this? Jerusalem was barren and desolate for 70 years. How did they create a rededication if you didn't have a king and you didn't have a functioning breastplate? The answer is, the answer, my friends, is blowing in the wind. It goes back 
to the original first sanctity sanctified by King Solomon in the first base on Migdash. Shehu Kedesh Hoazorah Yerushalayim L'Shaton. King Solomon, Shlomo Amelech, sanctified the courtyard, sanctified Jerusalem. He did it for that period of time. And here come the three famous words, Vikichon Laosid Lovay, and he sanctified it for all future times. So Jerusalem remains holy, and the Temple Mount remains holy, and the courtyard remains holy, even up to Ezra's time, even up to today. Lefikoch, therefore, says the Rambam, Makrivim HaKorbonus Kulam, therefore, theoretically, we can offer sacrifices. There are many opinions that say that even though there is no Besamigdash, if all else is in place, like the altar and so on, you could theoretically bring offerings. And we can eat the Holy of Holies. In the entire courtyard. Even though the Beis Hamikdash is in a state of devastation and destruction, there's no courtyard wall. We can eat the lesser level of holy and the second tithe. We learn b'chol Yerushalayim is throughout the entire Jerusalem. Even though there were no walls, how could that be? Because when Shlomo Melech, when King Solomon sanctified the, the Azorah, the courtyard area, and Jerusalem, he did it for that time, and he did it for all times. I was actually taking my daily walk this morning and listening to a Fabrengen of the Rebbe, where the Rebbe talked about an interesting scenario that there was a great scholar who lived, I believe, around the time of Tosfus, in post-Talmudic times. His name was Rabbi Yechiel Mi Paris. Yechiel, Rabbi Yechiel of Paris. And he was planning a trip to Israel. Now, during that time, I don't even think they had El Aliyat. They didn't even have uh, Ben-Gurion Airport. So he was debating with contemporary scholars whether he's allowed to go offer the Paschal sacrifice, even though there's no Beis Hamikdash. Because according to Halacha, you're allowed to offer a sacrifice as long as everything else is in place. And the Paschal sacrifice can be brought in a state of impurity, if the Jewish people are in impurity. So I'm just bringing an example. In the end, he didn't do it. But I'm bringing an example of an actualization of this debate. Tezayin, now the Rambam asks a big question. Any one of us who remembers we were learning earlier in the book of agricultural laws, in Sefer Zeroyim, we learned again and again about various agricultural laws that there are different segments of Israel. There is the segment sanctified by Ezra, then there is the section sanctified by Moses, and we learned a whole different set of rules, and that's what the Rambam asks here. Why do I say? With regard to the Migdash and Jerusalem, 
the original sanctity of King Solomon made it sacred for all future times but when it comes to the sanctity of the rest of Israel for the purposes of the sabbatical law for the purposes of the tithing laws we said earlier that it was not sanctified we said that Ezra needed to re-sanctify it which seems to be in a, a head-on collision contradiction to what we're saying now how could it be and let me just point out from the Mosnaim Rabbam he says that in the previous halachas the Rambam stated that the sanctity of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem would remain for eternity because of the initial consecration by David and Shlomo. So when Ezra rededicated Jerusalem, as described in the book of Nehemiah, his act was merely memorial or testimonial. There was no need to reconsecrate the temple because its original holiness had never been nullified. But this seemingly contradicts the Rambam statements, which we in this class learned again and again and again in the book of Zeroyim, the portion of Mishnah Torah which deals with the agricultural laws to be observed in Eretz Yisrael, there the Rambam says that the original consecration of Eretz Yisrael was nullified after the Babylonian conquest. And Ezra, when he returned, he re-consecrated the land, causing various agricultural laws to be in effect again, though only rabbinically. This seems to be a massive contradiction. So he goes on to answer, The answer is that the sanctity of the Holy Temple, the sanctity of Jerusalem, comes from God. God sanctifies the Beis HaMikdash. God sanctifies Jerusalem. And God's presence is never nullified. God is always there. Even as the verse says, and I will make your holy places desolate. Our sages say, that's the verse, I will make your holy places desolate. Say our sages, even though the holy places become desolate, they maintain their sanctity. Jerusalem never lost its sanctity. The Beis Hamikdash, the courtyard, the holy temple area never lost its sanctity. To this day it's sacred. Avol, but, however, chiyuv ha'oretz, the obligations which exist within Israel, bishviyas in the sabbatical year, over maestras, and the obligations which exist with the tithing laws. It's not about holiness. It's because Israel was conquered by the vast majority of the Jewish people. That's what makes it liable for the sabbatical year and for the tithing. And being that the land was forcibly removed from the Jewish people in the Babylonian destruction. Then that conquering was nullified. So therefore... Because Israel is no longer under the control of the majority of the Jewish people, it has become exempted 
Mimaisis umishvias, biblically from the laws of tithing and the laws of the sabbatical year. Shari'ena min eretz Yisrael, because it has nothing to do with the sanctity of Israel as it was conquered by the majority of the Jewish people. So, biblically, the law is no longer applicable. But you have the return to Israel, the second commonwealth. You have the return of Ezra. How could you not keep the laws? The Kivashola Ezra Bikicha, when Ezra made Aliyah, ascended back to Israel and sanctified it, like Kicha Bikibush, unlike the earlier conquering of Israel by Yehoshua, by Joshua, who fought wars and conquered it with armies. Ezra did not fight wars and did not conquer it with armies. Ezra received permission from whichever kings were ruling. So how did he establish residency? How did he establish presence? Simply through a process called chazaka. Chazaka is a manifestation of ownership. It's accepted by Torah law as one of the certain formal acts of contract which acknowledge that the transfer of property from one person to another exists, is real. Ezra established chazaka. He was there. Well, the fikr, therefore, the rule is, as we learned earlier, wherever the aliyah, those who returned to Israel from Babylon, ascended, and became sanctified, with the sanctity conveyed upon it through Ezra, which is the second commonwealth, who that's established today. Even though the land was taken, the Chayyab Bishvius and would be obligated rabbinically with the laws of the sabbatical year and tithing. Al as we explained in great detail in the earlier laws of the heave offering of Truma. Now we're talking about a different law. Now we're talking about the Holy Temple. Now we're talking about Jerusalem. We're talking about its divinely ordained sanctity that is forever. In effect, as we will say in the next chapter, even today, end of chapter 6. Rambam, Mishneh Torah, Hilchah is the laws of the house which God chose, the holy temple. Padek Shvi, chapter 7. By the way, I just want to point out, that this special section of Hilchas Beis Abchira, of the laws of the chosen place, has eight chapters. We're now in chapter seven of eight, and this is a very special book, which the Rebbe ordained we should study during the period of the nine days, the Tisha B'Av period, to remind ourselves of the imminent reconstruction of the Beis Amigdash through the coming of Mashiach, and this is a very central section in the Rambam, these eight chapters. So now we're at chapter 7 of 8. Aleph. Mitzvah say it is a positive commandment, liyira min amigdash, to hold a holy temple in awe. Liyira literally means fear. What are we afraid of? We're in awe of Hashem's presence. Shenemar, as it says, umigdoshi tiro'u, a verse in the Torah, you shall revere my sanctuary. You're not afraid of the sanctuary. 
You're in awe of the one who commanded that the sanctuary has sanctity. And that is Hashem. So therefore, practically speaking, how does this apply? How does this manifest itself? He says, A person should never enter the Temple Mount area holding his walking staff because it's disrespectful and the Rambam gets these halachas. This is sourced in the Mishnah. Or wearing shoes. But he has to remove his sandals which was a sign of respect as we see. When God appeared to Moshe and said, Take your feet, take your shoes off your feet. To this day, when we go to the Ohel of Rebbe, we remove our shoes. Or wearing only undergarments, sweat garments, sweatpants. Or with the dust on his feet. Or with his money wrapped in his money belt, in his kerchief. All of these are disrespectful to enter the temple area. Certainly, it is forbidden to spit in the entire temple ground area, the whole temple mount. What should he do if he has to spit? He uses a cloth, a handkerchief or something. Furthermore, the Temple Mount should not be used as a shortcut, entering from one end, leaving from the other end, simply to cut down one's walk. He should encircle it from the outside, even though it's much longer. He should only walk in for the purpose of a mitzvah. You know, some and many of these laws are brought down in halacha today about a synagogue as well. A synagogue is called a migdash ma'at, a miniature holy temple. And one of the laws it says with regard to the synagogue is somebody should not use the synagogue as a thoroughfare for a shortcut. But he comes into the synagogue, he has to first sit and pray for a few minutes. Then he can keep going. Gimel, furthermore, as a sign of respect, anyone who enters the Temple Mount area, should come in on the right side. And a, a mirror image law, when we go up to the Torah, we go from the right and come down from the left, if possible. And then we encircle and go around oh, through the left, except for when something bad happens to somebody, like somebody becomes impure or something, who goes on the left. The fecal, therefore, when they saw somebody walking on the left perimeter, they asked him, why are you walking on the left? He said, ah, because I'm a mourner. They said, may the one who dwells in this house comfort you. So it was clear, if he's walking on the left side, something is not kosher. He's a mourner. Shani Menudo, you could say, I was just uh, excommunicated. I was ostracized because of something I did. So they say to him, Let the one who dwells in this house 
give you a change of heart. You have to change your evil ways and get along with people or do whatever you're supposed to do. And that way you won't be under ostracization. Dalit, furthermore, for anyone of the people, let's say the Kohen, who finished his task in the Holy Temple and is leaving, never turns around with his back to the Holy Temple in the courtyard. He walks little by little backwards. Going slightly to his side until he leaves the courtyard. And to this very day, I remember when I went into the Rebbe for Yechidus, we used to back out as a sign of respect. Even today, when we go to the Ohel of a Tzaddik, we back out of the Ohel as a sign of respect. That's a takeoff of these laws. The chain, so also Anshe Mishmar, the people of the Mishmar. What is the Mishmar? The Mishmar, the Kohanim, were divided into priestly watches. All the Kohanim were divided into 24 groups. They each worked for a week. So the people, when they finished their week, the Anshe Maimed, what's Maimed? Usually you can't bring a sacrifice unless the owner of the sacrifice is there. And the owner of the sacrifice would pray and there was a whole ritual. What happens with the communal offerings? There are delegations of Jews which are called Anshe Maimud. They become the representatives of the Jewish people as the owners of the communal sacrifice. So they also have turns. They also have watches. The Levites do as well. So when the Kohen or the Israelite or the Levite finished their term in the Beis Hamidrash, they also walked out with respect. Reminiscent of how we walk back three steps after we do the Amida. We're walking backwards. All of this is a sign of of being in awe of the Holy Temple. Furthermore, as we learned earlier, the entry to the Temple Mount is from the east. Then one walks towards the west. The Beis Hamikdash is towards the west. The Holy of Holies is the furthest west. So the sanctity goes from east to west. Therefore, a person should never act frivolously, disrespectfully, in a meaningless way, manner, before the eastern gate of the courtyard. Shehu, which as we learned earlier, is called Shar Nikonor, the gate of Nikonor, the eastern gate. That was the primary gate that people entered into. Because the eastern gate is lined up if you keep going west, do west, with the Holy of Holies. So therefore, already entering the eastern gate, one has to act with extreme holiness. One has to have an extreme makeover from the mundane to the holy. And anyone who enters into the courtyard, you don't run through the courtyard, 
Yahalech, one should proceed, benachas, calmly. Bamokim in the place, Shemutalele Konasham, he has to make sure that he's in area where he's permitted to be. Remember, we said there were different areas. There was a woman's courtyard. There was an Israelite courtyard. There were a Levite section. There was a Kohanim section. So a person has to walk with dignity and respect and make sure he's in the right area. The Yidat Mishuemid Lifnei Hashem, he has to portray himself with the proper respect as if he knows he's standing before Hashem. As it says, My eyes and my heart will be there always. One must go walk. One should walk with tremendous awe, fear and trembling. In the house of God, we shall walk with fervor. So in general, one must act with the highest level of humility and deference and respect. Furthermore, six, we also the Cholodim, Leisha Bechol the temple courtyard, is not a place to sit. There were no benches there. There were no bus benches. You couldn't bring your lawn chair. No sitting. The Ein Yeshiva Bazora, the only one who was licensed to sit in the temple courtyard, was El Lamalche Bez David Bilvad. Kings, descendant of the Davidic dynasty. They were the only ones that could sit. Shenamar, as it says, the king David came, and he sat before Hashem. Even as we learned earlier, the Sanhedrin, who sat, we learned that the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, would have their meetings in the chamber of the Yun Stone. How could they sit? So we learned earlier, I believe chapter 5, halacha 17, chapter 6, halacha 7, that half of the chamber of the Yun Stone was in the holy, and half was in the mundane. They could not sit in the holy part. They only could sit in the mundane. They could only sit in the half of the mundane, which is very interesting. Even the Supreme Court was unable to sit in the temple courtyard. As he says in chapter 5, Halacha 17, I'm just going to read from there. The supreme Sanhedrin sat in judgment in the Lishkas Hagazis, the chamber of Yunstone. Half was in the holy and half was not. And the Sanhedrin sat in the half that was not consecrated. Even they were not permitted to sit in the consecrated part. Even though, due to our transgressions, the holy temple has been destroyed today. That's what we say in the high in, in the holiday prayers, in the high holiday prayers. Because of our sins, we were exiled. Because of our sins, the Beis Hamikdash was destroyed. Still, although there is no a person must act with great fear and deference as if just as a person acted when it was built. There are clear lines of demarcation where one may walk 
and where one may not walk. You can't go anywhere you want. One today cannot sit in the courtyard area which was. One should not act in a disrespectful way. Lining up to the eastern entry of Sharnikana where it was. This is actually a central verse in the Torah. Shanamar, as it says, is you must observe my Sabbath. You must act with awe for my Besamigdash. Mashmida Shabbos Le'elam, just as the Sabbath observance is forever. Afmeida Migdash Le'elam, the fear of the Holy Temple is also eternal. Shafapi Shachara Bikdushasi even though it was destroyed, it maintains and retains its sanctity. Going a step further, he says in 8, Bisman Shah Migdash Boni, when the Besam Migdash is still built, already in the area of Mount Scopus, one may not act frivolous, frivolously. And that is any place within sight of Jerusalem. That's even outside of Jerusalem. And inside, as long as the Holy Temple is visually there. And there's no separation, there's no wall. But if there is a wall, that law does not apply. Furthermore, going even a step further, also a person may not use the bathroom, a shayishan, or sleep between east and west, because that is the pathway which the Jew entered the Temple Mount from the east, Going to the west where the Holy of Holies. So east to west is the pathway of sanctity. Needless to say, one should not set up a latrine, a bathroom, a toilet, in the direction between east and west. There's commentary here. Simply speaking, unless there are walls around the bathroom, the walls permitted one to do it any direction one wants to. Others say even when there are walls, one should try to situate the toilet between north and south. Because the holy temple is in the west and the entrance to the temple mount is in the east. A person should not use the bathroom on the east or west or west or east side. Not the west because that's where the Shekhinah is, not the east. Because it's facing the west, rather between north and south. That's where we can relieve ourselves, that's how we can sleep. And if somebody is even urinating from anywhere from Mount Scopus towards the city, he shouldn't sit facing the holy, unless he's facing north or south. Or have the temple at his side, and there's a lot of debate as to where these laws fit in today when we're not in the Mount Scopus area and so on. Yud also law them Shiyasa based topness heichal. Furthermore, a person may not make a house according to the holy temple's design. Achsadra topness ulam. A person may not make a porch area with the design of the entry hall, Chatzar Kenegadah a courtyard corresponding to the temple courtyard, Shulchan B'tzura Shulchan, a showbread table looking like the showbread table, or Meneda B'tzura Menorah, Menorah looking like the Menorah. But we could make it somewhat different. 
For example, we can have a menorah, not of seven branches, which is what they had in the Beis Amigdash, but of five branches, which is what many synagogue menorahs have. Menorahs of five branches. We light five candles when we're leading the service for the five levels of the soul. Many synagogues have menorahs with five candles. A shashmoinakonim, or of eight branches, which is the Hanukkah menorah. A menorah shamatechas, or a non-metal material menorah. If it's not metal, it can even have seven branches. There were three camp areas, three areas in the desert. We know we learn in the Chumash in Bamidbar Machni Yisrael, the Israelite camp, Behu Arba Machnas. In the Torah, it referred to the four banners. Each banner had three tribes in it east, west, north, south. Then within the inner circle, there was Machna Levia, the camp of the Levites, where you had the Levite families and the Kohanim, Shenemar, the Savivlamishkanyachnu. They dwelled around the tabernacle area. And then there was the center point, which was Machna Shechina, the divine presence itself. When we pass the Chatzar from the gateway of the courtyard of the tabernacle, moving inward, corresponding to the way it is set up in a mirror image for all times. How does this work? From the entry to Jerusalem, until the Temple Mount area, that has the sanctity of the camp of the Israelites. So the entire Jerusalem in the walled area up to the Temple Mount. From the entry to the Temple Mount until the entry to the courtyard, which is the above-mentioned Nikonor Gate, that is like the Levite camp in the desert. And from the Temple Courtyard area, moving inward, is the Holy Presence of Hashem's camp, and in the Holy Temple area, there was an additional level, which was the Chael area and the women's courtyard, which had a separate level of sanctity. Now he says, speaking of sanctity, says the entire land of Israel is holier than any other land. How does its holiness? express itself in the practical vein, because it is only homegrown in Israel that the Omer offering could be brought to barley, and the two breads from wheat, and the first fruits, you cannot bring the Omer, or the or the Bikurim from produce grown outside the land of Israel. Now comes this famous teaching, Yud Gimel, there are ten levels of sanctity in the Holy Land. One higher than the other. The lowest of the ten is cities surrounded by walls. These cities, which had walls around it from the time of Yeshua, are more holy than all other cities. How does the holiness express itself? They send out lepers from these cities. A corpse cannot be buried within them until the entire city, or at least its seven chosen representatives, the city council agrees. Once the corpse was taken outside the city, 
being that it's a walled city, you can't return the corpse. Even though the whole city says, yes, we want this person buried here. Doesn't matter. Gone is gone. What if the inhabitants of a city want to what's called disinter a corpse, to move a corpse? They can, because it's a walled city, the less corpses, the better. Any corpse can be disinterred for a reason, with the exception of the grave of a prophet or a king. What if a grave, which was originally placed outside the city, and now it's in the city because of the expansion of the city, from four sides, or two opposing sides, if there was more than 50 cubits from it to the grave, from the city area to the grave, then you cannot disinter it until everybody agrees. But less, it could be disinterred. Now he says in 14, Yerushalayim, the city of Jerusalem, Mekodesh, is holier, than all other cities, even those which have walls. What's special about the city of Jerusalem in halacha, in Jewish law? You can eat the lesser level of holy foods, the minor level sacrifices, may be eaten anywhere in the city of Jerusalem. Omasasheni, the second tithe, may be eaten anywhere in the city of Jerusalem, where lifnimechemosa, as long as you're in the walls. And we learn many, many details of these laws and the laws of the second tithing, and we will learn these laws and the laws of sacrifices. Now, there's a whole set of laws we cannot do in Jerusalem. Did you ever hear that nowadays somebody passed away in Jerusalem? And the wedding was at night, I'm sorry, and the funeral was at night. They bury people at night in Jerusalem. Anytime. Why? Because of this halacha. You can't have a corpse be overnight in Jerusalem. The funeral has to be right then and there. They, they drive around with cars, with loudspeakers, because, you know, people don't have smartphones and internet. And they say, funeral, funeral! We do not carry the bones of a man, transport. Furthermore, Jerusalem is God's city. You can't rent houses to people in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a place where people came to visit God, and they had to be hosted, not rented houses. One should not put a stranger settler who is not Jewish in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a place for people who want to come serve God. One should not sustain burial places in Jerusalem. Chutz, with the exception of the graves of the house of David, the Keber Chulda, and the grave of Chulda the prophetess. Shehoyobah, which were in it, from the times of the earlier era prophets, we cannot plant gardens and orchards in the city of Jerusalem. You cannot plant fields. You can't plow. 
because we're concerned that there will be a foul smell of fertilizer and stuff like that. We don't want to bring a foul smell into Jerusalem. Nor should we have orchards and trees with the exception of the rose garden. The famous rose garden which was there already from the time of the earlier day prophets. The petals were used in preparing the incense offering. Therefore, an exception was made in this case. Nor should there be a garbage dump in Jerusalem because of rats and other crawling animals. Who needs these animals running around? Garbage dump breeds rodents. Nor should we build balconies or protrusions extending into the public domain. Why? Because something protruding into a public domain will cause a covering where if there's a corpse under it, then that will bring about the impurity to spread. Because in Jerusalem, during the time of the Beis HaMikdush, they did and they will maintain ritual purity. Furthermore, we don't make furnaces because we don't want the whole city to be smoked up. We shouldn't raise chickens. Why should we not raise chickens? Because the chickens cause ritually pure articles to become impure. Chickens feed on the bodies of the of the rodents, eight crawling species. Therefore, they might bring the body of one of these animals into contact with a person or article which is ritually impure. Therefore, let's not raise chickens in Jerusalem. Similarly speaking, a Kohen should not raise chickens through the entire Eretz Israel for the same reason. If they are taught us to maintain ritual purity, a house in the city which is sold. We learned that a house could become the permanent property of a buyer unless it is redeemed within the first year. In Jerusalem, that doesn't apply. And here, I said earlier, it does not become impure through any types of plagues of leprosy. Nor can Jerusalem ever become an apostate city, as we learned in the detailed laws of idolatry, because it has to be a city which is residential, and Jerusalem is not made for residence. Nor can we bring the Eglarufa, the calf, whose head is chopped off because of a murder. Because all of these practices are only brought about when it is divided amongst tribes. Moving right along, going up, the Temple Mount is holier than the city of Jerusalem. Because on the Temple Mount, there are additional laws of purity and impurity. On the Temple Mount, those who have a flow from their private parts, male or female, 
or those women who are menstruating or who have given birth can't enter there until they are in a state of purity. It is permissible to cause the dead himself to enter. He says a corpse can be brought there and one who became ritually impure may enter there because the Temple Mount is equivalent to the camp of the Levites where Moshe dwelled and Moshe carried the coffin of Yosef throughout his journey in the desert. Tezayin HaChel, the Chel area, which is closer to the Holy Temple, Mekudosh Mimeno, is holier than it. She'ein akumut me'mesu be'ol nidon nechnosin where people who are idolatrous or people who are impure due to exposure to death or a man who engaged in intimacy with a menstrual woman, all may not even enter into that area. Moving right along, there is the section called the women's courtyard, which had balconies where women were, which is the outer area. Even somebody who immersed in the mikveh that day, but is waiting for sunset, cannot enter there. This is a rabbinic prohibition. But biblically, it is permissible for someone who immersed in the mikveh to enter into the Levite camp, and someone exposed to death who entered into the courtyard of women, is not obligated to bring a sin offering. Yudches, moving right along, the Israelite courtyard is even holier than the women's courtyard. Because a person who purified himself, but has not yet brought the proper sacrifices, as we will learn, may not enter there. And somebody who is impure who entered there, of Kodes is obligated with the punishment of the cutting off of the soul, so that that area Ezra's Yisrael is super holy. Even holier than that is the Kohen's area. Yutas 19, Ezra's Kohanim, the courtyard of priests, Mikudashas Mimenu, is holier than that. The only time an Israelite can walk in is if he has a specific need, the smicha, for the leaning of the sacrifice, for atonement, for slaughtering, for waving. Otherwise, he has to remain in the Israelite section. Bein ha'ulam, between the entryway, and the altar area, Mekudosh Mimeno is even holier than that. Shein ba'lemum and ufri, reishu kri, begadim nechlasin and he ka'anim will have physical deformities, and he ka'anim will have grown long hair, or anyone whose priestly garments are torn may not even enter there. 21 chafalav ha'heichol, the actual building of the holy temple, Mekudosh is more sacred, bebein ha'ulam, then even the entryway and the altar area, only a Kohen, who had his hands and feet washed with the water of the laver, could enter there. The house of the Holy of Holies is even holier than the Holy. Because only the high priest on the holiest day of the year during service may enter there. Chav Gimel, and here we learn a very interesting law in this, the closing paragraph 
of chapter 7. Mekayim, or Mokayim, Shehoya Ba'aliyah, Mechuban Al-Kadosh HaKadoshim. There was a place, an upper story, in the Holy Temple, which was located directly above and opposite the Holy of Holies. There's a note here. The Tesefta in Kalim brings down, Abashol says that the status of the upper story of the Holy of Holies is more strict than that of the Holy of Holies. In regard to the Holy of Holies, the high priest enters four times a year on Yom Kippur. In contrast, they would only enter the upper story of the Holy of Holies once in seven years. So he says, this area, they only entered once in seven years, laid out to ascertain what kind of repairs the Holy of Holies required. So they had someone who knows his stuff in the repair world enter into that upper chamber. Furthermore, when the builders or the fixers the repairmen, the handymen went to correct it, or to take something impure. It is incumbent upon these people who enter to be completely kosher koanim, unblemished koanim. So you needed to find koanim who are repairmen. If they couldn't find a repairman who was a koan who was unblemished, he comes to Balimum and then let the blemished Kohen go in, but still he should be a Kohen. If they can't find a Kohen, you come to Levim, let a Levite repairman go in. They can't find a Levite, you come to Yisrael, let an Israelite go in. Preferably someone who's ritually pure. If they couldn't find somebody ritually pure, you come to Tmeim, let somebody ritually impure go in, because it has to be fixed. What if there's a choice between somebody who's ritually impure and someone who's blemished? Let the blemished one go in by Yukonis Tomei. Let the impure one not go in. Impurity is superseded, is pushed away when it comes to community. And anybody who enters into the vestibule to fix, should be brought in, as we learned earlier, in boxes. There was like a box with three sides with only one side opening as we learned earlier that the person should not feast his eyes on the holy of holies in ancient tables if they don't have boxes or it's impossible for them to do the work in the boxes you consider that let them go into the door you got to do what you got to do end of chapter seven